Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridion. And we are going to be picking back up today on page 53. We spent a good deal of time looking at the law, and now we're going to turn to that which the law defines, which is going to be sin. You know, you'd figure if anything we were to be an expert in, we'd be an expert in sin. But lo and behold, that's not the case. Sin is, the irony of sin is that it so pollutes and perverts us in our senses, including our reason, that we can't rightly, or we can't think rightly about sin. We can't even rightly understand that from which we're suffering. This is why, biblically, Leprosy is such a great analogy because the nature of leprosy is that you don't even feel the damage that's being done. You know, you're, don't mean to be gruesome, but you're losing a finger and you don't even know it. It's the nature of leprosy. So that's the nature of sin also, that we, the worse you get, it's almost always the case that the better you think you are. So, we're going to take a look at sin as defined and diagnosed by the law. We're going to see that as sort of an ongoing uh, help. And, oh, it looks looks like right before we get to sin, we're going to do just a little more in the Decalogue, now that I take a look at it. Oh, yes, we'll talk about the Pharisaic heart and the Epicurean heart. Sounds interesting. All right, well, let's open up with an invocation prayer, and we'll get to it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, on page 53, down at the bottom, the Decalogue, and we'll move fairly quickly here until we get to 54. When the doctrine of the law is set before the church in the New Testament, what is meant by, quote-unquote, law? And the answer is the Decalogue. The Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. For when Christ and Paul mention the law in this sense, they simply mean the precepts of the Decalogue, many references given. Next question, what is the teaching of the Decalogue, or what is the Decalogue? Answer, here should be restated the definition of the moral law from the commonplaces and examine of Philip Melanchthon. Um, We've been through the commonplaces before in this class, but again, the moral law being that natural law written on men's hearts, restated precisely in the Ten Commandments. Okay, over to page 54. Question 84, is the Decalogue to be taught in the Church of the New Testament? Answer, yes. For Christ and Paul, by their examples, have clearly given us this directive. Scripture references given. Next question, but Christ, Mark 16, 15, commands to preach not the law but the gospel. Hopefully you can already sift out the problem there since you know the difference between the gospel and the wide sense and the gospel in the narrow sense. You can already detect the error that the question presumes a narrow sense of the gospel. Here's the answer. 
in that passage, gospel is generally taken for the whole doctrine of the divine word, what we would call the wide sense, whose chief parts Christ and Paul list, repentance and remission of sins, or repentance toward God and faith in Christ. But since repentance, that is, acknowledgement of sins and of divine wrath, is properly not the teaching of the gospel, but of the law, there's the narrow sense. Therefore, Christ does not want only the gospel, but also the law to be preached. For he also does not want only faith or remission of sins, but also repentance to be preached. Okay, at Question 86, since the sum and purpose of the preaching of the gospel is that God wants to remit sins and receive sinners into grace because of Christ, why then is it necessary first to rebuke sins on basis of the law and reveal the wrath of God? Why do we not immediately begin with the preaching of the gospel? Interesting, and you've heard this in our own day, haven't you? You've heard that the world is permeated with the law. There's no need to ever speak the law. Just go out and forgive sins. That's all we do. Chemnitz disagrees. How come? Well, he cites Matthew 9.12, and then he or gives a reference, and then says, the gospel is to be preached to the poor, namely those whose hearts have first been terrified and broken by the preaching of the law. Right? in a number of scripture verses referenced. But again, I want to refocus your attention on what he says, that the gospel is to be preached to hearts that have first been terrified and broken by the preaching of the law. Now, you can do this by a thought experiment if you want. Just walk up to somebody, this is your thought experiment, okay? I wouldn't really recommend this. Walk up to some random person in the grocery store and tell them, Jesus forgives you all your sins. What reaction do you expect to get? Now, let's assume it's an unbeliever that you... Confusion? What kind of kook? Kind of Indifference? Yeah, great, that's nice. Yeah, cool, super. Yeah. Um, oh, okay, so if it's cool, you respond then you want to come to church with me on Sunday, right? Why would I do that? Well, God wants you to. Well, didn't you just say I had forgiveness in Jesus? So even if God wants me to and I don't, I'm forgiven, right? Great. So, since Jesus forgives me my sins, according to what you said, I don't need to do anything, right? Good, not going to. Thanks for the fire insurance. So, yeah, I mean, now, you're not going to have that sophisticated of a reaction, but that would be some of the logic inherent in such a reaction, some of the presuppositions. So, again, just going out and announcing to people that God has forgiven you your sins, not going to do a darn thing, is it? We all know that by experience. We don't need experience. We've got all these biblical references, too, um, that we could look at. Yeah, please. Yeah, please. And I would be lost in thought walking down the street. 
And I can't tell you how often people would come up to me and say, smile, it's not so bad. Mm. And I wanted to knock their block off. <laughs> I was not right. thinking anything bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I was just lost in thought and they interrupted me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess I have a, you know, I have a kind of a German st- stern look on my face when I'm lost in thought, but I'm not feeling that at all. I guess that's another side of the coin. But oh, it bugged me as a kid because I thought you just destroyed my pleasant thoughts. Yeah. Uh, well, and you've kind of got that. You've kind of got that in a in America too, where you've got this pathological optimism. Everyone's got to be happy and optimistic all the time, and it's a sin. It's a sin not to be. It seems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's um, so. You know. I, I mean, this is going to take it in a slightly different direction. But, I mean, there's, there's like, okay, your sins are forgiven. There's people who say, okay, well, even when I'm preaching the gospel to you, I'm still preaching the law because forgiveness implies sin. But when you're dealing with the pathologically optimistic, happy, I'm a good guy, the world's good, everything's good, American ethos, that's completely lost on them. I mean, that, that, that only time the implicit nature of sin being involved with someone's forgiveness bothers us is when we're in interpersonal conflict, okay? And it hasn't been stated that there's any sin. And then one of the two parties says rather passive-aggressively, oh, I forgive you. <laughs> Which really what they're doing rhetorically is, accusing that person of sin in such a way that they're the judge, jury, executioner. It's already done. They're already guilty. They're already executed. But don't worry, because I'm a gracious and large person, I've already forgiven you. So, I mean, I've actually had this experience, not not in my family, (laughs) but in the life of the church, where someone passively, aggressively marches up to you with a furrowed brow and says, I forgive you all your sins. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, okay, what's really going on there? You're being accused of sin without knowing what the charges are. You're not agreeing to that, nor are you in any way, shape, or form repentant because you've just been accused nebulously of sins, but now you're being, quote-unquote, forgiven by the very person whose forgiveness is really just the pretext for accusing you of sin. Okay. So this is um, maybe to zoom all the way out of the weeds. This is part and parcel of the nonsense that many in the church have told themselves that preaching the gospel is just a matter of going out and telling people God forgives you. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way biblically, and it doesn't work that way experientially. About the only people I think who think that that's a possibility are people who have never tried it or don't understand human nature very well to begin with. Okay, so biblically and in keeping with the biblical teaching, Chemnitz says the gospel is to be preached to the poor, namely those whose hearts have first been terrified and broken 
by the preaching of the law. Now, that use of poor is helpful because it'll give you a little bit of a glimpse into probably the core understanding of what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit are those who realize and recognize their poverty before God. Well, what causes that? The law. God's holy will saying, this is what I desire your life to look like, and you reflecting on that and go, my goodness, it doesn't look like that. You recognize your poverty. Okay, he cites Matthew 9.12, and this is, this is probably the only scripture I think I'll read here in this section. Matthew 9.12, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, are there any who are truly well? Are there any who are truly righteous? No, there are only people who think they are well and think they are righteous. And Jesus says explicitly, I did not come for them. I mean, there's a condemnation right there. And a kind of diagnosis. That if you think you're well and righteous apart from Christ, you have no part in Christ. But... If the law has done its work and you recognize that you are sick, that you are a sinner, then Jesus has come precisely for you. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not for the righteous, but sinners. So the law has an important preparatory function in bringing a person to faith. In fact, a necessary preparatory function. It sets the stage for the gospel to do its work of converting. Can the law convert? No. The law can just till the field, so to speak, so that it receives the seed of the gospel which springs up to life. But it's the gospel that gives faith. It's the gospel that gives life. But the gospel won't do that if the soil is so hard that the gospel just bounces right off of it. If the heart is so hard in its own goodness and its own righteousness that when someone does say, God forgives you your sins, it just bounces right off, as we were describing moments ago. Okay, so you can see this teaching then of Chemnitz, of the Lutherans, and by the way, this is codified in Uh, the formula of Concord in our Book of Concord, this very theology, in fact, this very phraseology. So this is formal and official teaching of the Lutheran Church and also the Scriptures, of course. But you can see that it derives from Christ himself that not everybody gets the gospel and not everybody should get the law. There's a right and proper application of these two different doctrines. How does that work? I'm glad you asked. Chemnitz is going to describe. (laughs) Okay, so let's go just a little further, and then I'll pause and see if you want to reflect on anything. So this will give us a little bit more fodder. 
Once more from the top, just for continuity, the gospel is to be preached to the poor, namely those whose hearts have first been terrified and broken by the preaching of the law. For a Pharisaic heart, now here's your first category, for a Pharisaic heart swelled with pride in works of its own righteousness thinks that it has need of neither the preaching of grace nor of Christ. Well, and that's where you can probably see in our culture, probably in most cultures, probably most people who aren't believers. I mean, who knows? But that would, that would sort of be my hunch, for whatever that's worth. Suffer from this kind of Pharisaic heart in one form or another. They, they basically think that they're a good person. And they basically think that only maybe only Hitler and the political party I oppose, maybe those are the only folks that are in hell. There's probably like, you know... Well, there's the other political party, and then there's probably like four other people in hell. And the rest are in heaven. Why? Because we're all good guys, and God's a good guy. That's sort of the American religion. Moralistic, therapeutic deism certainly fits in this case. But we do have folks who really believe in their own righteousness all around us. They don't need grace or Christ, and they would just look at it as supplementary anyway. Hey, well, thanks for letting me know, just in case my good guy balance sheet doesn't square with God. Hey, thanks, I've got Jesus there as a safety net. I'll, I'll keep that in mind, appreciate it. Um, which is, of course, no faith in Christ at all. So there's the first condition, a Pharisaic heart. Does a Pharisaic heart, I know this is going to be obvious, does a Pharisaic heart need law or gospel? Law. Ah. I mean, you're just going to keep pounding grace, pounding. No, no, really, God forgives you. Pregnant pause. I mean, nothing, right? It's a hard heart. It's not going to receive the seed of the gospel. So the law has to come and till that heart up and prepare it to receive the gospel. Okay, next category is the next line. And a secure or Epicurean heart. Now, Epicurus is a fourth century, or excuse me, a, uh, what would that be? I always get this. Third century BC, <laughs> before Christ, Greek philosopher. And he, he gets a little bit of a bad name in the medieval period when people are very much interested, again, in the ancient philosophers, Aristotle included. And his positions get a little bit turned into a caricature. So his general stuff, let me check my notes here. The gods exist, but they have no dealings with men. This is Epicurus. I mean, he's obviously not a Christian. Became popular in the late years of the Republic. He's kind of a, like, yeah, he's kind of a hands-off type of guy. And... Um, pretty low on, on like cosmic consequences of your actions. So he gets assumed and characterized by medieval theologians as kind of a libertine spirit. Epicurus is just do what you desire and feast and fulfill your wants and perceived needs. Okay, so... That's Epicurus. So a secure or Epicurean heart. Let's gather a little more context from what Chemnitz writes. A secure or Epicurean heart is not concerned about those things 
and neither desires nor seeks them. Okay, so let me read a little bit more and we'll get this fleshed out. Therefore, the way is to be prepared for Christ the Lord through the law in such a way that it is pointed out to the Pharisees. There's the first category revisited. The Pharisees from the law that they are under sin and the wrath of God and cannot stand before the judgment seat of God by their own righteousness nor earn eternal salvation by works. And it should be made clear to the secure and Epicureans, there's the second category, how dreadful and abominable their sins are before God, because of which they are held under the wrath of God in eternal damnation. So that in this way, both Pharisees and Epicureans might begin to hunger and thirst after the righteousness that the gospel reveals and freely sets forth in Christ. So you have these two different spiritual categories. Um, maybe, maybe we would translate this, and this is subject to some art, so maybe you've got a better way of doing it, but the Pharisees are kind of the goody-two-shoe rule keeper, I'm a good person and therefore I don't need Jesus. And the Epicureans are like, well, God doesn't really care. He's got bigger fish to fry than me anyway. You know, look, if he's really going to call me to the judgment seat, which I don't think he's going to, there's a long list of worse people ahead of me. So I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry. Thank you very much. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. So kind of a more libertine spirit where the other tends to be kind of a more conformist spirit, um, but both suffering from the same sort of root pride, which says, I don't need God's grace or forgiveness. For whatever, whatever reasons, I don't need God's grace or forgiveness. So again, the more you pour out God's grace and forgiveness, the more you're not only wasting your time, but absolutely casting your pearls before swine, as our Lord would put it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me pause there, because we've introduced these two great categories to keep in mind. We've also introduced the larger position that not everybody gets the gospel. The law is for some, until the law has done its work in them, and then they get the gospel. Make sense? Okay, what are your thoughts? What questions do you have? There's a hand over here. Um, let's see, the, uh, the, the application of the law and gospel, then it seems like it would uh, be dependent upon the individual to, to receive it. So if the individual has the Pharisaic heart, then the, then the law is required. And if the individual already sees their sin and they have a broken heart, then the gospel is appropriate. So it seems like there's this uh, principle of balance behind the application of law and gospel. And so I'm wondering, <clears throat> what do you think the difference is between balance understood in that Christian context versus, say, balance in um, you know, an Eastern, uh, like the yin-yang or the, uh, the Taoist idea of balance? Do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, maybe, uh, maybe they would sort of 
overlap somewhat, like Venn diagram style. Um, they'd have some conceptual overlap. But overall, the way that, let's just say in specific from the Lutheran Reformation to the present, the way these have been viewed is um, more as that which, in a sense, you would apply to yourself, and then in another sense, you would apply to others. So it becomes more of like a treatment motif, okay? So which I, which I would think of as somewhat different from the yin and the yang, where you've got these two forces in balance, the law and the, law and the gospel may be in balance. Um, I think that that would give too much place for the law, is that am I am I going down the wrong path on this or? Oh, okay. <laughs> then, I, then I'll just riff a little bit longer. Why not? Um, but yeah, no. I think that that gives just a little. Like if you pit sort of like law and gospel against each other, uh, that's kind of a bad move. And then if you were to do like, well, let's say the law is the dark part and the light part of the yin and the yang. I can't remember which is which. Yeah, yeah. And so in terms of salvation, which is really what we're talking about right here, we're talking about soteriology, salvation, the law plays a very distant second fiddle to the gospel. The law is, I mean, you go till the field, you got hard soil, it's not going to receive any seeds, you go till the field and you walk away and do nothing, what's going to happen? Nothing or weeds, <laughs> Right? So that's all, the, that's all the law can do. Whereas the gospel is that seed that brings life and growth and fruit. So the, the law is a necessary preliminary treatment in order to give the real medicine, which is the gospel. You know, it's sort of like, um, let's say, uh, gosh, I'm terrible at this. I should absorb more of what my wife does. Let's say that a, let's say that a doctor needs to um, cut you open in order to apply a medicine internally. Let's just say this. I don't know if this is a real thing or not. I'm not a doctor. Okay. The cutting open, what if he just stopped there? Yeah, he didn't heal you at all, right? So that's the same with stopping with the law. The law doesn't heal at all. But he can't get the medicine inside of you until he's cut you open. So the cutting is itself destructive, narrowly destructive, and contrary to healing if you were to pit the two against each other. Which, But again, that's dumb, right? Who does that with surgery? No one. They don't say, I'm not going to let you cut me open. Are you kidding me? Sir, that's the only way I can repair your heart. Hmm. You know, <laughs> it's just dumb. You see, you see the destructive action... And the healing action is part of one whole, not pitted against each other. It's the way the law and the gospel function. So the law comes and does the incision. It's, it's the necessary preparatory work for the real work, which is applying the, the stint or the medicine or whatever it is. And the thing that's actually going to heal you, that's the gospel. So the other is just the precursor to the real healing. And it, so again, when we're in the... <clears throat> We're talking about soteriology, how one is saved, how one comes to the faith, how to evangelize, how we, and again, we can reflect on this in ourselves, our own soul care, so to speak, and in how we uh, treat and speak to other fellow Christians. 
this law and gospel thing, it's always the law in service of the gospel. It's always the law as preparation for the gospel. But the gospel is the thing, you know. And absent the law, like the Decalogue, like the Ten Commandments proper, you can appeal to the conscience. And I'll sometimes do this, like in, a fu- in funeral sermons, where I can detect after the opening hymn that we've got maybe two Christians in the entire sanctuary. <laughs> um, you can change from, hey, the, you know, and I, I never preach it this crassly, but understand that God's law condemns you to has not your own conscience condemned you? Have you not in and of yourself experienced that dissonance? Where does that feeling, that pit in your stomach come from? It is your own self involuntarily condemning you. And you experience that, and that is the experience of sin. And for that, you will die. And now you've done the work of the law. And so what should immediately follow is the preaching of the gospel. Yet even so, while you have been an enemy of God, living as if he did not matter and as if you mattered most, while you were still his enemy, he loved you and loved you to such an extent he gave his most priceless treasure his own beloved son. And his own beloved son has loved you so deeply that he shed his blood to pay for those sins and to pave the way for you to live with God in harmony for everlasting life. And he loves you so much that he sent messengers all throughout the earth. And I'm one of those right now speaking to you and preaching to you that you might believe, that you might have eternal life. Don't reject it. Don't walk away. Okay, and, and so on and so forth. But that would just be a little microcosmic example, and maybe I'd do it differently depending upon the audience, but it would give you an example of how the law and the gospel would function together and might function in the heart of someone who's by and large ignorant of the Ten Commandments or maybe even repulsed by uh, the assumption that they're beholden to the God of the Bible and his judgments. So we've got, a, we've got a great internal appeal when we speak to people that their conscience, insofar as it's not damaged, reflects the law of God and their mortality. Every time they look in the mirror and see a new gray hair or a new wrinkle, their mortality is a simultaneous preacher that they're going to die. These are the two most helpful things um, sin and death understood subjectively are maybe the most helpful ways of preaching the law of God. Yeah, please. Well, ideally, uh, the church is... Oh, you've got to turn the button on, Josh says. He's got his... There you go. Uh, ideally, the church is full of repentant hearts. Um, and the pastor has this challenging task of assessing whether what the mixture of repentant hearts are with epicurean and pharisaic hearts and 
I guess, you know, I think Luther said that if you can assess that properly, you you deserve a doctor's degree ah, in theology. Yeah. I think I heard that once. But my question is this, is a repentant heart, what is uh, the guardrails? How, how do we ensure that we don't fall back into a Pharisaic heart, which obviously the Pharisees did? And uh, what role do we as individuals do to accomplish that or to assure, ensure that? And what role does the pastor have, etc.? If you could just comment on that. Yeah, I, I mean, there's two facets to your question. And the first facet is one of formal theology. It's like if you pull back the curtain and look at what's really going on. What's really going on is that we can't, by our own cooperation or activities, do anything to sustain ourselves in a repentant state or to sustain ourselves in faith. It's all the gift of God, okay? And that's, that's the formal side of the coin. That's the theological side of the coin, okay? There's this Augustine quote that's really helpful in this regard. I think he uses it in prayer, but it's kind of the same for faith or repentance or anything. You can plug and play there, the noun, the subject. He says, um, yeah, I think he says this, if I'm not going to butcher it too bad. Well, let's change it to, let's change it to faith. So he says, um, believe as if it all depended upon God, act as if it all depended upon you. And what I, what, I, what I think is great about that is he, in the one little pithy statement, he summarizes the dichotomy of the scriptures, the two-sided natures of the scriptures on this question. The scriptures pull back the curtain, so to speak, on what's really going on in our spiritual lives. And they say, look, it's all God and you can't do anything and you're saved by grace and not by your own works. And that includes your continued participation. It includes anything that you're going to do. It's in God's hands. He's got you. You're safe. There's not a drop of contingency. There's not a drop of condition in his gospel or in your salvation. And it's essential to keep it as such. Otherwise, you could never be sure. You're right back to the old medieval question of how can I know that I've done that which is within me? How can I know I've done what I needed to do, this bare minimum, right? Okay, so there's the first side of the coin. But the second side of the coin, and you see this all the time in the scriptures, is this active language. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. I mean, the only people who have any ability to seek are those people who have already been brought to faith. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Paul likens it to running a marathon, which you don't do by sitting passively. Or boxing, which you don't do by sitting passively. Or wrestling, which you don't do by sitting passively. And now, is this an introduction of synergy and synergism, working together with God for salvation? No. But what these are expressive of as act as if everything depended upon you. It is the call of God to, and you can think of Jesus too, like, stay awake, watch, be prepared, endure, okay? The Lord's not adding in a little sprinkle of, you've got to do these things or else you won't be saved. The Lord is saying, in your experience as a Christian, this is what it's going to feel like and be like, and this is how to position yourself, so to speak, in the best possible way. 
to be on guard from your own flesh, which would snatch your faith away, the world and its lies, which would snatch your faith away, and the devil who's prowling around like a lion seeking whom he may devour, who would easily snatch your faith away. So these are, this is the reality of the Christian life lived. All right, and then beyond that, I think, like you would just, I would lay out two, two just basic biblical, basic Lutheran, small catechism 101 principles. And the first one is go to church. And the second one is daily pray. <laughs> I mean, that's, it, it's just, I don't know. I've been accused of legalism for saying that before. I just don't care because it's what the catechism teaches. It's what, and the catechism is teaching, go to church and pray every day on the basis of the scriptures and on the basis of what God's people have done um, from the times of the Old Testament patriarchs up to the very present. We've just got this sort of libertine ideas, really sort of very late Lutherans who have almost lost the plot, where we start to think in these really strange ways and start to think like, well, since it's all grace, I shouldn't pray. Since it's all grace, I shouldn't go to church. Since it's all grace, I shouldn't try to do anything because I don't want to be a synergist. I don't want to think that my actions somehow make me righteous or make me keep the face. I'm just not going to do any of those things. I mean, what? Well, the devil's a master of judo. Taking one's energy and using it in the exact opposite way that you intended. Okay, so that was a little bit of a lark. Any, um, but did I, did I address, uh, did I address the main, main idea there? Okay. Okay, let's go on to question 87 then. But in describing the passion of Christ, the gospel sets forth much clearer than the law itself the horrible abomination of sins and the magnitude of the wrath of God against sin. Those of you who remember doing Luther's antinomian disputations recognize this logic right away. This was the logic and rationale of a man named Agricola. And he basically taught that, well, what is the gospel? The gospel is Christ crucified for you or for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, already right there in Christ crucified, already right there in you are forgiven, your sins, is the law. And in fact, the law ramped up so much that you don't need the Decalogue at all. You remember this argument of his? Okay. So in describing the passion of Christ, the gospel sets forth much clearer than the law itself, the horrible abomination of sins and the magnitude of the wrath of God against sin. Therefore, Bernard says, I would never have believed that the horribleness of sin and of the wrath of God is so great if God had not set it before me to contemplate in the most bitter death of Christ. What a beautiful quote but you're going to see um, that it's misused here. Is there then need for the law to set forth clearly sin and the wrath of God? And Agricola would say, absolutely not. But of course, Luther said, absolutely so. What does Chemnitz say? To teach what is sin and what is not sin, Likewise, to pronounce on us sinners the sentence of divine wrath and eternal damnation 
is not the function of the gospel, but of the law. Since the gospel teaches that Christ has redeemed us and has reconciled us to God the Father, it at the same time shows from what Christ has redeemed us, namely from the condemnation of the law. It likewise shows how and at what cost Christ has obtained reconciliation for us, namely since he was made under the law, he took upon himself our sins and the righteous wrath of God against sins, and according to the severity of the law, made satisfaction for our sins by his obedience and death. And thus the gospel, while it teaches that Christ made under the law has fulfilled the law for us, sets forth the doctrine of the law, showing namely and setting before our eyes in the passion of Christ how grave and intolerable a burden, sin, and due punishment for sin are before the judgment seat of God. And what is to be cursed according to the law. That was a long sentence. Let me wrap up and then I'll get this all clear for you. And yet the difference between law and gospel remains clear. For the gospel declares that God made his son to be under the law for us, that he heaped our sins on him and that he poured out on him his whole wrath and the curse merited by our sins, that we might have peace, and that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But the law constrains our very selves, rebukes our sins, not in someone else, but in our very selves, and pronounces the sentence of wrath and damnation because of our sins, not against someone else but against our very selves, unless we hold on reconciliation in Christ. Okay, so in terms of the superficial levels, should the gospel still be preached or just the, or excuse me, should the law be preached or should just the passion of Christ be preached since it has the law inherent in it? Chemnitz, along with the scriptures, says no, the law needs to be preached. The Decalogue needs to be preached. Okay, And then, what is the secondary consideration? That sure enough, one can reflect on the crucifixion of Christ and see law elements. Not least of which, that beautiful quotation by Bernard, which is being misused here, misapplied here, that I would never have believed the horribleness of sin and the wrath of God if God had not let it or set it before me to contemplate in the bitter death of Christ. So that's the way in which you look at what it took to cure us in Christ, and you infer then, oh my goodness, if it couldn't have been done in any other way than this, then how great is my sin. So Luther will also say this, that you can meditate upon the crucifix in an entirely law way. So, there's a kind of a fun preaching way to do this, just with inflection. Christ is there because of you. Law or gospel? <laughs> law. <laughs> okay. 
Then with inflection, you can say, Christ is there because of you, you know. So, gospel, right? Or at least the best I could off the cuff. So, the same, the same way that inflection can change the nature of the crucifixion, so can your meditation. If you meditate on, on this is the wrath of God, this is what is due me and due the whole world. If this is how he treats his only beloved son who bears my sins, how would he treat me as a sinner proper? And this sort of thing, right? And it, it like, truly is terrifying and enlightening and amazing. I mean, in a... <laughs> in just a shock and awe kind of way. Okay, but then similarly, we can meditate on the fact that it is him on the cross, not me. And he is in my place because he would not have it any other way because that is the depth and profundity of his love for me. And that if I were the only sinner in the entire world, he would still go to that cross for me. And he knows my name, and he knows my sins, and he knows my sinful nature, and he knows all of it. And that's precisely why he's there, that I could be set free from all of it, and that I may dwell with him forever in his house, and not as a second-class citizen, but as the prodigal who comes back and is returned to the highest honor of sonship. You know? So, okay, so what is that to say? Along with Luther, you can say that even something like the crucifix or meditating on the crucifixion in your mind, in your imagination, can be done in the way of the law or can be done in the way of the gospel. Okay? So that's the secondary reflection. While that's true, while that's good, while that's right, we don't use that to negate the preaching of the Ten Commandments and the accusation of those Ten Commandments unto impenitent sinners. Nor similarly, and we're getting ahead of ourselves, do we use the passion of Christ to negate the law having a positive place in the life of the Christian who receives the atonement of Christ by faith. The life of that Christian then recognizes, as Chemnitz has said, that we are set free from the condemnation of the law. That's the first and that we are set free from needing to use the law to self-justify. That's the second. Freed from those two aspects, we can, as St. Paul himself does, delight in the law of God. We can pray Psalm 119 without a crisis of conscience, which is basically a love song to the law. (laughs) And we can rejoice in the wisdom and goodness of God all throughout the law, and we can conform ourselves to that same wisdom and goodness and beauty. Okay. And there then, all of a sudden, the law looms large. Indeed, if you take this to its climax, and I'm going to scandalize you as a Lutheran, but that's okay. The, Luther, the real Lutheran fathers knew all this. But when you take this to its climax, there are these three, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is faith. Greatest of these is hope, because there's a time in which faith and hope go away. There's a time in which the gospel itself goes away, because the gospel of the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus is no longer necessary. It's fulfilled. It's brought to its telos. And in the end, sola decalos, in aeternam est, 
only the Decalogue is eternal, only love is eternal. That's what Luther was getting at in his antinomian disputations. It's what St. Paul is getting at. It's what Jesus is getting at. And so if we're talking about salvation, or if we're talking about the, yeah, let's just talk about salvation, the law is small and the gospel is almost infinitely larger. When you talk about the Christian life per se and the eschaton, the gospel becomes almost infinitesimally small and the law, the will of God, the goodness and beauty and ordering of God becomes supreme. Because the, the gospel is the precondition. In that frame, the gospel is the precondition that you believe this gospel, that Christ did this thing for you, and he objectively did. That's the precondition for entering into a life of order and goodness and righteousness and beauty, which is the... Ten Commandments lived eternally. The love of God for love, uh, His love for us, our love for Him, our love for our neighbor, our neighbor's love for us, lived eternally. The two tables lived eternally. Make sense? Okay. Might be a little scandalous because we probably haven't heard these things in a Lutheran church for like I don't know, hundred years. <laughs> but they used to be commonplace, as you can see from Chemnitz. Okay, any thoughts, any reflections? So, what you just said, if that's the precondition, does, does that maybe suggest that sometimes the gospel might be in service of the law? Yeah, well, the gospel ultimately is in service of the law because... Okay, yeah, because... You don't, like, what does God have in mind? And at, just think of the last chapters of Revelation. Or think of the new heavens and the new earth more broadly, as taught in the scriptures. Does God have in mind that we, be, that we live forever and ever perpetually as sinners, perpetually being forgiven? No. Then God doesn't have in mind that we live forever in the gospel. What does God have in mind? That we live forever in righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. I mean, this is exactly what the, cate- what the small catechism teaches, which is simply the law embodied and fulfilled everywhere in ourselves and in all creation. We're in complete harmony and unity with God in a way that we can't even conceive. Can you imagine how wonderful it's going to be to wake up in the morning in the new heavens and the new earth and be like, what do I want to do today? And absolutely every last thing that you could possibly conceive of or choose is going to be righteous to the max. I can't wait. I cannot wait. Okay? That's the liberty that we're being set free into is the law of Christ. This realization that everything is... Okay, so then, yeah, what's the, what's the point is that the, God is using the gospel, the death of his son and the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins to, that we might believe in this and that by believing we might become his sons and have this new birth and regeneration through faith and the waters of holy baptism, but not that we would forever remain perpetual sinners, perpetually forgiven, but that ultimately we would arrive at the telos and end where we're no longer sinning and no longer need forgiveness, but that love is simply the love of God has its way with us so that we love him and we love our neighbor and our neighbor loves us and all is love and harmony and sinlessness. 
And therefore, in that sense, then the gospel is the precondition for what God ultimately is going to bring about in the new heavens and the new earth. I think if you think, I mean, if you think biblically about it, and if you just think about it, period, you're going to realize, even if this is kind of a novel idea to you, you're going to realize it's true and it can't be otherwise. To assert otherwise would be to assert that we're going to be perpetually sinful in heaven. We're not. Now, it may well be the case, and this is kind of what I mean by preparatory, a necessary presupposition, is it seems to be the case, at least presently in heaven, and it may be the case forever in the new heavens and the new earth, that when we look upon Christ, he's going to bear in his body those scars uh, by which he purchased us. So there will be a constant and continual reminder that we are here and righteous and enjoying this righteous, perfect creation, meditation upon God and all his goodness for all eternity because of what Christ did for us. No doubt about it. But that's what I mean in terms of logic. That's a precondition. Um, In terms of an experiential, existential reality, uh, Christ the crucified is the center of the new heavens and the new earth, the Lamb of God, the light of the city of God. And so, I mean, all of eternity and all the joys and rejoicing and beauty and wonder is predicated upon what he did for us. And we'll we'll never lose sight of that. We'll never forget that. It's like the foundation upon which the new heavens and the new earth are built. But at a certain point, you've, you sort of like, the point isn't just the foundation. The point is all the other stuff upon, that is built upon the foundation. Yeah, that might be another way to think about it. Okay, yes, please. In response to the Taoist thing, this is uh, oh, yeah. interesting. Um, we had a neighbor who was from Formosa, and she, we would talk about things one, like once or twice. And this came to my mind in talking to her, and in response to your, the position of the gospel and so forth, exemption. I thought, this is like if I tell her about sin, it's like she's on top of a building and there's fire going on. But the response is there is a safety net if she will jump. And that this is a, I th- see this as an illustration of the precondition of the gospel that you brought up. That makes any sense. Yeah, it sounds like a fruitful thing to, to contemplate a little bit more. Um, question 88, is the law to be taught for this purpose that men are justified and saved by it? By no means. Strongest possible rejection of that. Question 89, but what about Deuteronomy 30.19, Matthew 19.17, Luke 10.28, Romans 2.13, and Romans 7.10? Okay, I just found Deuteronomy 30.19 for us, which will hopefully give us the flavor. Here's 18 leading up to 19. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, 
that you may dwell in the land of the Lord, or that the land, excuse me, dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give him. Okay, so let's see what Chemnitz has to say about this. The law of God requires pure, holy, and altogether absolute and perfect righteousness. If one has and renders this, he shall doubtless be righteous thereby and saved in the sight of God, according to the promises of the law. But that no one is justified or saved by the law is not the fault of the law, as though it teaches either wicked or imperfect works, but it is because the law is weakened by the flesh, which cannot keep the law perfectly. Okay, so you'll sometimes hear Lutheran preachers talk this way, that the law is such a heavy burden. No, it isn't. Was the law a heavy burden to Adam and Eve? Not at all. It was second nature. They woke up and did the law. It was completely light. Is the law a burden to the saints who are in heaven right now around the throne of God? Not in the least. They couldn't do anything but the law. It's like breathing air. Is the, is the law a heavy burden to us in the new heavens and the new earth? No, absolutely not. Okay, so the law isn't a heavy burden except for when we are underneath it as sinners. But then is that properly the law that's suddenly a heavy burden? No, it is our flesh. It is our sinful nature that is the heavy burden. It is our own Lack of desire, when desire is present, lack of ability, lack of energy, lack of discipline to fulfill that law, which for all other human beings in all other states is a piece of cake. I mean, this is in a sense what Jesus means. It's a subset of what Jesus means when he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you go, I don't find being a Christian that way. That's because you're reflecting on the nature of your flesh. But then it's, it's your flesh that is a burden and yoke that aren't easy or light. But that's quite distinct from Jesus. So this idea of being exasperated by the law or burdened by the law is, a, is an utter confusion, theologically speaking. It leads to all kinds of theological disaster downstream. The law is a delight. The law is easy and its burden is light. The problem is not the law. The problem is our flesh that now weakens the law, idiomatic way of speaking, makes it so that we can't do the law and thus can't live unto righteousness and be saved. So that's what Chemnitz is on about here. Okay, looks like we've, uh, we've come to the conclusion of our time. We didn't get us going as fast as, that seems to be par for the course here, um, as I had hoped. Next week, by and large, we'll be on this question of sin, this concept we should be experts in, but we're not. And we'll get to make some distinctions. We'll get to look at original sin and actual sin. We'll get to look at mortal sin and venial sin. And we'll also get to reflect on... Um, Article 1 of the Formula of Concord, which we're also going to read next Thursday, at least the first part of it, in our service. And this is going to be, how do we understand original sin? How do we understand it as the human being post-fall 
is of his very substance and essence sinful, or do we understand it as something else? And of course, we do understand it as something else. All right, that's it for today. The Lord be with you.